Hey, everybody, Fran Frischella here, and welcome to World of Basketball, a podcast where we take you around the basketball world with interesting guests, uh, players, coaches, executives um, who really have had an impact on basketball from their little corner of the basketball world. We've, we've brought some great guests to you so far, Jerry Colangelo and, and some others, Kirk Penny most recently. Uh, this week, we got a very special guest, Tony Ronzoni uh, of the Dallas Mavericks. But before we mention Tony's story, if you like what we're doing, uh, give us five stars. Uh, give us some feedback on how we're doing. Uh, let us know how we can make it better. But we really need your support because we want to keep this thing going and bring you all these interesting stories. And uh, our guest this week, Tony Ronzoni, has been part of the Dallas Mavericks front office for a number of years. He also served time with the Detroit Pistons and the Minnesota Timberwolves. And uh, as someone who has fallen in love with, college, uh, with international basketball in the last 20-plus years, uh, Tony's become a really good friend. We worked together at the uh, Reebok and Adidas Euro Camps, which is the international combine for international draft picks. Uh, 75 guys from that camp were drafted in the NBA. And when I think of international hoops, uh, very few people come to mind in terms of NBA scouting international players like Tony Ronzoni. He was truly at the for forefront. Uh, great background. He played at Arizona State. He finished up his basketball career at Long Beach State. He was the coach of the Dubai national team. Uh, he had a part in uh, drafting some tremendous players, guys that you may have heard of. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki. Um, Wang Zhuzhu, the first Chinese player to come to play in the NBA. Um, he's got great stories about Yao Ming. You'll hear about drinking snake blood and eating other unusual uh, appetizers from around the world as he ingratiated himself with coaches, players, and agents, uh, really from every corner of the world. Uh, we'll get into how many countries Tony's visited, and it'll be staggering. Uh, he is truly one of the most well-known NBA people in every corner of this basketball universe. And uh, it's a really entertaining story. Uh, it fits perfectly. Chris Tyler, my, my, very, my very special co-host, because we have NBA basketball back. Yeah, and how finally. cool is that? Did you get a chance to watch any yesterday, or are you going to watch over the next couple days? Not yet. Haven't had a chance to watch anything yet, but uh, my Celtics are playing tomorrow, 5 p.m. against OKC, so I'll make sure to watch that. And I'm a bit nervous at the moment, actually, Fran, because uh, the fact that we haven't had basketball for so long meant I could get back into watching movies every night. So I've been on yeah. a, bit, a bit of a movie binge <laughs> since March, and now I'm like, okay, am I still going to be able to watch my movies every night? Do I watch basketball? Do I do both? I'm kind of at a crossroads now, but look, if the Celtics are on, I'm going to make sure to watch them. I'm still going to watch as much basketball as I can, but Man, it's it's ruined my routine for the past, you know, four or five months. I understand completely. I just, we, my wife and I just finished four and a half seasons of Billions. And oh, we're watching that at the moment. We're, we're still on season one. We're on yeah. episode four. Oh, yeah. We started no. watching it like two days ago. Yeah, we, we, we just finished Billions. We're going to start something else, maybe Yellowstone. Nice. Uh, okay. Uh, we were up in Park City when they were filming Yellowstone with Kevin Costner. So that nice. that's on the agenda. But, uh, hey, kudos to the NBA. Um, the testing protocols in the bubble in Orlando are going really well. And yesterday, Chris, when I watched, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the exhibition games, um, they really did a nice job inside the arenas. It doesn't, you can't tell there aren't fans there. Um, we just went through this with TBT who did a fa fabulous job. And, uh, the only thing I'm going to ask the NBA to do once we complete the regular season um, we've had great success with this in TBT. The NCAA has done this to great fanfare, and I'm hoping the NBA does this, and that is put up a big, giant playoff bracket in those arenas and show us who's playing who, and when a team advances, let's say the Oklahoma City Thunder advance, that those guys run over to the bracket and stick on that OKC Thunder uh, you know, uh, sticker onto the bracket. Um, TBT started something cool. The NCAA is doing it, and uh, I, I'm hoping that the NBA follows suit. That would be really cool, in my opinion. So, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And then next step is bringing the ELAM ending. 
Well, listen, <laughs> I've had some discussion with some of my friends and uh, my good basketball fans. Not everybody's a fan of the Elam ending. I think it's great. It's perfect for the TBT. Perfect I think it's perfect for, for TBT. It was certainly yeah. great for the NBA All-Star game. I think it would be great in the G League, uh, potentially great in some preseason college tournaments, uh, AAU grassroots tournaments. I definitely think there's a place for TBT. There's even some discussion that at some point down the road, the NBA would look at this, you know, maybe to, you know, to, uh, to use in overtimes. I'm, I'm not at that point yet. Uh, I know I'm not at that point yet, but uh, certainly <laughs> it's got a spot. But I want to see the big bracket up in Orlando with all, great know, idea, all the teams. Great idea. And uh, yeah. we'll see. But anyway, without further ado, uh, this you and I uh, really enjoy talking to Tony. Uh, Tony Ronzoni, Dallas Mavericks. You will learn about uh, NBA draft scouting. You'll find out how all this stuff, uh, rec- recruiting and drafting players from around the basketball world has developed. And uh, Chris Tyler, my Aussie friend, you and I both know this because we've talked about it, right? But uh, nearly 25% of the NBA this past season were guys born outside the United States, oh, yeah. including a few Aussies, correct? Absolutely. Got some good Aussie players as well. They're not just middling players. They're, uh, there's some there's some big-time players. Well, you know ben Simmons, in- obviously, being the big one. Joe Ingles looking good. Yep. Patty Mills. Man, what's that? Well, you know, I'm, you know I'm in love with your guy, Joe Ingles, the slowest man in the NBA, who is uh, Absolutely. maybe the craftiest guy in the NBA. So We'll get him on one day. We'll get him on the show. We're going to get him on. We're going to get yeah. him on. So anyway, without further ado, here's our chat with the Dallas Mavericks, Tony Ronzoni. Tony, how are you, man? I'm doing great, and, and Fran, <laughs> I'm so excited to be on this show because we're talking about <laughs> basketball and some positive stuff, and, and yeah. this, is, this is the world I live in, so I'm all about the world. Yeah, and you know, I, I have to say, uh, people, people who follow me on Twitter and ESPN, they know how much I love international basketball, and it's, it's really because of you, Pete Philo, and, and Donnie Nelson, Tony, that... Uh, that that love of international basketball has been cultivated through the years. We have uh, we have many great times together at the Euro Camp, but you have an incredible, incredible basketball background internationally uh, connected with the NBA. I don't think there's anybody that could be a better guest than you. So we're we're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm excited about it, and and, and just you know, as, as my mind started thinking when you're talking about Euro Camp, the great. <laughs> stories of being around these players that ended up being in the NBA and the great job Pete did and the great job yeah. our coaches staff did. And we had a lot of head NBA coaches that were at the time assistants working their way up. The Kenny Axon, who was a development coach who yeah. was in Brooklyn. And so, and you JB, know, the Terry Stotts. J.B. Bickerstaff. Yep, Jack Sigma. I mean, yeah. we go through and we've had a great <laughs> alumni of people there. And, and those were great, you know, and the, the game competitions that when I played against your team and the excitement <laughs> oh, yeah. we had and you knew my circle played pretty good. Yeah, we had some passion. And, and there's got to be a ton of guys that are, even though some of this is going back 10, 15 years, there's still guys, you know, seeing Tom- Tomas Santoransky in the league, obviously, and uh, so many guys, you know. Serge Ibaka. Uh, Serge Ibaka. Uh, go down, go down the Biz- list. Bismack Biombo. So anyway, hey, I want I want people who are listening to know, we were talking before, tell me what you estimate. How, how many countries do you think you have been in because of basketball? I would say around 95, 98. It's over, it's over 90 countries. Uh, I went through it with my wife trying to get an idea, but we, we were over 90 and uh, – it's it's been a lot, and I'm talking from every continent of the world I've been to, <laughs> except Ant- Antarctica. Have you been to Antarctica? I have not, I, and that <laughs> is one I need to get to. Okay. I just don't know if they have any players over there. Now, if, they, if, if they don't have players, you're not going to be there. That I'm much I know. Hey, uh, tell us this: what we're we're in a different time right now with the with the virus basically bringing the country to a halt. What's what's scouting been like for? the NBA and the Mavericks in particular. We can't get into details about players, but what's the, what's the logistics of what you guys have had to do really for the first time ever? Well, one is a lot of video conferencing calls is, is, is probably the most, we, we do it three times, four times a week. Uh, we go over free agency, we go over scouting, and it's everyone on our staff and getting an opinion from them. So we spend a few hours every morning getting prepared. And Again, the organizations that have a uh, solid scouting crew will have an advantage during this uh, 
uh, pandemic we're going through right now because the information and your relationship with the coaches become very, very important. Um, yeah. You know, guys like you who are out there watching every game every night with your with what you do is is you become very valuable resource to all of us. Uh, yeah. So the information, if your relationships in this business, it becomes so important right now, friend. Yeah, we're going to get into that information. It's so key. Um, but tell tell the listeners like what's different about this year. In other words, take me through the NCAA tournament in normal years, conference tournaments, going overseas. What would that have been like? Let's just say for you and a guy like Donnie Nelson, who are ultimately going to bring the decision back to your own and Mark Cuban. Well, one is the guys that you wanted to re-see again, this third and fourth time. You know, at the end of the season, there's a couple guys that you wanted to see that, you know, you didn't have on your list when, the, when the, everything stopped. Um, and then you go to the conference tournament. You always pick out uh, where you're going on what players you need to reevaluate, and either the best player valuable or some teams uh, draft by position need when you rank those guys. So we missed out on that part. Um, you know, but again, our guys have been out there for the last five months seeing pretty much everybody in the country. The tough part is guys like Donnie Nelson, who you, relies on more at the end of the season and these conference tournaments because they're with the team most of the year, that right. that becomes a factor. So his, he relies on us heavily even more now. And we also, you know, with the Chicago uh, Combine is probably going to be canceled. We don't know. I don't want to speculate that the league has right. to decide that. They can move that later. That's right. going to be out. Uh, the interview process is different now. We can only – interview up to four hours per week uh, to interview players via broadcast, you know, on online Zoom or whatever it shall be. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really changed the landscape and it becomes your early evaluation becomes really important. Uh, again, your relationship with coaches and getting the right information, which we'll get into later, but yeah, it's changed yeah. everything because we don't know if the draft's going to happen June 25th. It could happen in August, it could happen in September. And then you have the early entry players that we're still trying to process them. Are they staying in? Are they staying out? In my opinion, I think what's going to happen is a lot of these early entry guys will return to school. Yeah, because they're not going to have the feedback from you guys. Correct. And why, why risk? And, and, and here's the other thing. If you don't have this draft or anything until August or September, I'm again, I'm just speculating. Sure. Now you're a second round pick and or you don't go get drafted. Now either wait for to get drafted or you lose out maybe on a possible job overseas. Right. Because a lot of guys will probably grab jobs early. And also the number game international basketball is going to be different. A guy making 200 may now only make 120. So right. that's going to change the landscape also. So I think the G league is going to benefit from this Yeah, uh, because yep. guys are probably a little nervous about going overseas, getting paid. Uh, those are all concerns. So speaking to agents, those are all the stuff that questions that I get from them. Um, yep. Just regarding the future, and a lot, a lot of these, a lot of people don't realize that uh, teams overseas are sponsored by corporations and companies. And given what's going on around the world with the economic situation, there may not be the money for higher salaries or, or, or salaries that are normal. They're going to probably, you're saying, they're probably going to be less for a player coming over. I'm almost guaranteed they're going to be less. They're already yeah. taking pay cuts in those, a lot of these European countries. I just see right. a drop in, and it's a time for them to to want to uh, reduce salaries this is a time it's a sad time but they also these teams rely on people coming through the turnstile That's you know right. they make money on every home game they have right how about uh just one last thing on how the process is different this year um after the college season after the the nike hoop summit which would have been this week you and i would be in portland right now if everything were normal uh you or donnie would or both of you uh, on many occasions would head overseas to see the international kids in that final part of their seasons. Yes, that's one thing that Donnie and I do. Our little uh, secret that's out now is, we, <laughs> is what we do is we go uh, to the G League kind of event. They start on Monday in Chicago until Tuesday. Wednesday, yep. we start the interview process in the morning, and then we go all, all day. And then Thursday, we start the interview press in the morning, and, and then we go watch about 30 minutes of the first game in Chicago. And then Donnie and I sneak out the back door, and we head on to Ch Chicago O'Hare, and we fly <laughs> – to whatever city the the final four is in and yeah we kind of do all our uh thinking our thought process and everything moving forward to what we're going to do in the draft and of course when you go to the european final four where where would it have been this year frankfurt or Berlin? no it would have been in cologne cologne, cologne that's it yeah cologne so you'd have gotten to cologne and not only would you have been uh scheming with donnie about players you'd also run into about what 500 friends you knew at least minimum 
Yeah, and that's the advantage too, because what it is is so it's kind of like the NCAA Final Four. You know, yeah. back in the, you know when I used to go to them every year, you'd run into yeah. everybody, and and this is the same thing. You run into GMs, you run into coaches, because it's a time for them to gather. That is their Final Four, which is a yearly Final Four. So it's great just the information you get talking to everyone, and and then you get to see a high level basketball. And then the other thing is they run a junior tournament right every day from nine in the morning till five o'clock at night, and that's where you find. Alexi Suez, the Nicholas yeah. Batums, the Luka Doncic back in the day. And yeah. that's where you get a whole lot of information. So for me, that's more important than anything besides the two games a night, which is just enjoyable to sit and watch. But that junior tournament is huge. Yeah, and you're not going to have that this year. And that's that's the problem, I think, for a lot of teams is you're, as we mentioned earlier, there's less information out there. So you're guys like you, I think, are in great shape because of your connections. And, and that's what I want to get into. You uh, you grew up in Oakland, mm-hmm. right? You're an Oakland mm-hmm. guy. You, you you started your career at Nevada. You finished at Long Beach State with Joe Harrington. Was, yeah. Seth, Greenberg, was Seth Greenberg there? Yeah, it was a good step. <laughs> Joe Harrington, you're going to love this, Fran. Yeah. Seth Greenberg. Yep. Uh, uh, Derek Wittenberg. Yep. And <laughs> my guy, Butch Carter. Wow. Wow. How about that staff? That's at, Long, great... at Long Beach State. That's that's uh that's that's a big time staff. A couple, you know, Butch was an NBA head coach. Seth, Seth, and Derek obviously uh, were were college head coaches, and Derek was a great player at NC State. I you, love Derek because uh, Derek used to let me shoot all the time, and Seth never wanted me to shoot, so I wasn't a big fan <laughs> of Seth. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Hey, you went from there to playing overseas, but then you how how did this? You you are arguably the best and and first. American NBA scout. Now we've had guys stay over in Europe who are bird dogs, but you re- you basically turned NBA scouting internationally into uh, you were a pioneer. How did the whole idea of you becoming a scout uh, manifest itself? Well, it was first when I started playing. I played in New Zealand, and then I played in Australia a little bit. Then I went overseas to to Italy, started traveling, and during that time, I was very proactive. So I got involved with FIBA at age twenty one years old. And got it. Uh, there's a lady there named uh, Hunchchild, and she ran all the, the clinics around the world. And so at 21, I knew I wanted to get into coaching. And so they, they started sending me to these clinics. Now, the, the famous coaches of the world were going to Spain and Italy and France and doing nice clinics there. They were sending me to Tunisia. They were sending me to off spots, Sri Lanka, uh, Yemen, <laughs> places like that. And so I started, started valuing the, the, the game more that look, this game is not played in one country. This is played everywhere around the world. And this is after playing in New Zealand and Australia. And then what I did is I ended up getting a job with Bill Frieder at Arizona State. Right. And during that time, I was just in Australia, and we're sitting there and watching games. Where I'm sitting with Freeze. He goes, look, we need a power forward shooter. Well, at this time, Brian Gorgian just calls me because, again, my relationships around the world. Yep. Gorgian says, hey, I have a 6'9 kid that uh, wants to come play in the States. From Australia. Where does he want to play? And he says, I'm on, he wants to play on the West Coast. And he says he's looking at Arizona, UCLA, and you guys, because I know you there. So, again, relationships. Yeah. I said, what's his name? He said, Tony Ronaldson. So they call him the Bear. He played 20-plus years over in Australia. Yeah. 6'9", slow, <laughs> could not run. But I'll tell you what he could do. He could shoot a trail yeah. jumper. He can pick and pop all day, and he shoot the three. He come, we get – so Bill Frieder tells me, he says – can we get this kid? And I said, well, free, it's got to do a little work. I mean, we've got to recruit the kid and all that. And he said, well, can you go get him? I said, yeah. So I get on a plane, Lynn Archibald. Yep. We go to Australia. We end up getting the kid in 72. We fly and we were over there for 29 hours at most. And we flew right. there 29. I don't, you remember the rules? <laughs> yep. The yep. Rules? I hope I may not break in the rule, but I know we're <laughs> under the rules. I got and it. So I we, got fly, it. we uh, signed the kid, yep. get him, uh, get him over UCLA. That was my first big, Recruit. Recruit. We went in, end up going to the NCAA tournament. And the fruiter, you know, he was just, can we get the kid? He saw the kid playing the tape for five minutes, and that was my first, you know, make a decision, let's get it done. And so we brought Ronaldson over, and he ended up playing at Arizona State and going back and having a great career in Australia. So that was kind of the start of it right there where I realized that you can get players in college from, from anywhere in the world, and they can right. help your team get better. And yeah. this is when I was 20, what, 5, 24 years old. Yeah. All right. So before we talk about how the NBA scouting stuff started, you were the coach of the Saudi Arabian national team. How, how did that happen? And you tell know. us, tell us about your boss. All right. So this is a, so first of all, I get it. So I was at Arizona state is my second year. 
we had a great team. Uh, Hedding Smith, uh, 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 Austin. We had uh, Mario Bennett. Remember all oh, those players? I think you Good played talent. against. I think you played against so, Manhattan in the NCAA tournament. There you go. Yes. So, some now, young, some young coach lost to you guys in the second round. Yes, of the so tournament we, in night in '95. Yeah. <laughs> You got good memory. <laughs> so, so we, we ended up playing well. And the great thing with, with working with Frieder is Frieder lets you coach, you know, he liked to do more of the, uh, the, the recruiting part and all that. So I was on the floor and at the time I was a third assistant. So I was on the floor. So we had George McCorn, Lynn Archibald. I had three head coaches I was working for. And so they, uh, during the, I did all our scouting. And back then, you remember Fran, I used to fly to Kansas or Tennessee, whoever we played in our next game. And I would do on-site scouting. Right, which, which we could do, me. which we could do back then, yeah. Yeah, and I remember going to these events, and I was sitting next to Tom Mizzo, who was a third assistant, same as me, and 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 uh, Steve Lavin, and guys like this. And so, anyway, I um, after one of our games, we beat somebody that I think Drake by two. Bad, it was a bad game. We ended up winning. I remember Lynn Archer will teach me the time that every win is good in college, no matter how many points you win by. Right, so, right. Anyway, I get a call. Somehow he gets my home number, the Prince of Saudi Arabia. Prince Abdullah, one of the wealthiest men in the world, <laughs> calls me, said he wants to meet me, and he's at the Ritz-Carlton in Phoenix. Yeah. And so I'm like, why? He says, I want to offer you a job. And, you know, at the time, as a third assistant, you know, the money was pretty low, as you remember. I do remember. And uh, so he invited me over to his uh, hotel. He rented yep. the whole floor, um, walked in. He had a big spread of food, everything, and he started telling me why I need to come to Saudi Arabia. I didn't know what for. I didn't know what this was. All I knew at the time is that we were – I remember uh, Shaw from CNN was sitting on the corner talking about the Gulf War. And all Bernard, I remember Bernard, is that yeah, we're in a Shaw. wartime yeah. in Saudi you know. So yeah. I was a little nervous. So he offered me a number. I hesitated. He doubled it. I hesitated <laughs> again. He doubled it. So now I'm thinking to myself, this is an eight-month job, and I could be the national coach of Saudi Arabia and, and be a head coach at 26 years old. Yep. And then, and so after the third time I hesitated, he went up a little more, didn't double it again. And I thought, okay, maybe I'm at a point where he's not going to continue to go, but it was more money than I could ever imagine making in, in that year. And I thought, Hey, I can come back and buy, get a house and get a car and, and uh, be a head coach and start my resume early. Now I was leaving a pac 10 job at the time. Right. Um, but this but guy had started for you. So I went over there and, uh, that's where I started, and that's where I kind of started venturing out to around the world, playing in tournaments, uh, running into the Chinese national team. And but living in Saudi Arabia, it, we could we could spend three hours talking about all my stories living over there and being yeah. in a compound and the whole aspect. Of it. But at 26 years old, I was very adventurous. Uh, I wasn't scared to take chances, and I think that chance helped me in my career to where I'm at now because it enabled me to realize that there's basketball in Saudi Arabia. There's better basketball somewhere else around the world. You know, in 1992, uh, Donnie Nelson, Don's son at the time, and uh, still is, by the way. Mm -hmm, exactly. <laughs> but, but but Donnie Donnie got caught up with the Lithuanian national team, helped them with the Olympic team that year, because that was, I think, their first, first uh, Olympics as a free country, right, when the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Donnie, Donnie is Donnie gets part of he gets to be part of the Lithuanian national team with those great players, Marshall Onis, of course, guys you know well. Next thing I know, you're in China. I think you know you're at the Goodwill Games with 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 yes. Donnie Nelson. How did yep. how did the how did the connection with Donnie start? Because you guys were pioneers, and we'll get into all this NBA scouting and the guys. We'll talk about Doncic right. and and Dirk and those guys, but. Give me that connection with Donnie and how this blossomed for you. So I went to high school, Bishop O'Dowd High School, where actually my twin boys are graduating this year. And yep. uh, Donnie at the time was working for his dad, uh, Nelly, with the Golden State Warriors. So we had yep. a relationship back in 88. So we've known each other a long time before that. And so, you know, we were always talking about basketball overseas. He was intrigued with me going over to the Middle East. We, we just always kept in touch. And, and literally – I was, I had a little off time and this is after I left Saudi Arabia, you know, I went to Dubai and I coached in Dubai for six years. Got and, it. uh, when I was in Dubai, we had about a, uh, it was during Ramadan time. So you have a break and the goodwill games were going on in St. Petersburg, Russia. So I literally went on a whim, got on a flight from Dubai and I flew to St. Petersburg, Russia, going to the games on my own. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I remember I hung out with Craig Sager a little bit. Sager was there. Uh, he was doing the announcing for the volleyball for TNT. Yep. And I ended up uh, going to all the games and I ended up running the first day Donnie Nelson was there. He was scouting not only for the Warriors, he was scouting for the Lithuania because all the national teams were there. 
Got it. So he was he was there, and we ended up just talking, and we just our love for the game of international basketball is like you and I talked about international basketball, P five, exactly. and we just love it. Yeah. yeah, And we realize that there's players that can transition to our league, and at the time I wasn't in the league, and all they kept asking me is, is there any Chinese players that can play in the league? And I actually had a guy that I knew that could play in the league. Right. And so he, I didn't tell him the name. Yeah. And he goes, and he kept saying to me, he goes, look. I don't know what direction you're going in your life. I know you want to coach. He says, but, you know, if you ever want to get in the NBA, you, you need to stay in touch with me because I you're, what you're doing is exactly what our league's going to go to eventually. Wow. And that's when it all – and we continue from that time. And I would say the next two to three years, and then finally in 97, he said, why don't you come to Chicago for the, for the uh, pre-draft? And that's when they had it at uh, that June, that college. That's, uh, Moody, um, Moody Bible downtown. Moody Bible, correct. Yeah, Moody so Bible fly, downtown Chicago. I fly into uh, – uh, and at the time, you know, I'm networking every summer. So I'm talking – I knew a lot of people in college game, college yeah. school. So I arrive in, at the Hyatt Hotel there, and Donnie sees me. He goes, hey, great, let's meet tonight around 11 o'clock. Well, during this time, I run into Rudy Tatanovich from Houston, and he's yeah. asked me questions about, you know, what are you doing now? this and that, and what you looking to come in the NBA. And at the time, friend, I was not looking to come to the NBA. I was really enjoying coaching overseas. I loved the international game. I was, that was my passion, coaching. Yeah. And so, I, Donnie, I go up to his room at 11 o'clock with no ambition to go to the NBA. And, and it's probably yeah. how I ended up getting the job. Donnie right. says, hey, I, I want you to work for us. And he, I said, who are we working for? He says, well, we're going, to, we're going to Dallas. My dad just got the job there. And moving forward, he's going to give me the head coaching job in a couple of years. I want to bring you on as an assistant. So it was more in the coaching yeah. aspect. Right. So then Ellie comes in the room, offers me a Bud Light, which I take because I wasn't really <laughs> interviewed for a job. And I, I think that's probably how I got the job because right. I, know the fact that I like to drink Bud Light. So, uh, he looks at Donnie. He says, I love this guy. He says, uh, you, you want to hire me? And Donnie goes, yeah. He goes, Don, hire him. So that's how I ended up getting hired to go to the Dallas Mavericks. And then what I did, yeah, is I ended up moving to Italy. Wow, work with the Benetton Club, yep. living right there downtown, uh, where you know where how beautiful that is. And I oh live right man. now. From you're making me, you're making me hungry. You're making me hungry. <laughs> Topino, our favorite uh, pizza place in uh, Treviso. Yep, the best. So I was <clears> up, I ended up living down there for two years, and what I did is worked with Dallas, living in Italy at the Benetton Club at the time had tons of talent running through there and all the sure. great coaches Abradovich was there. D'Antoni coached there. You just, so I was there. So, so let me interrupt you for the, the for listeners. Benetton Treviso was really what I would describe as the Boston Celtics of, of, of Europe, right? Great tradition, the green uniforms, just really royalty back, <clears throat> back in that time. Right. The, the basketball program. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So I ended up being there for two years. And all that I did during that time is I would drive down to Slovenia, to Ljubljana. I was, I was watching um, um, uh, the coach from uh, – uh, just went blank. The coach from Lithuania is down at, in uh, Vilnius. Um, played in the NBA for a few years. Uh, Kurt, not Kurtonitis. N- not Kurtonitis. One of the best uh, shooters in the world. Uh, exactly. The, the, uh, the guard, the two guard, the play, the play to Maryland. Oh, oh yeah, Yasikavages. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I used to watch Saris all the time play. Yeah. And then at the time, Lubiano also was one of the hot teams. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I had – and in Bologna at the time was one of the hot teams. So I was in my radius, a two-hour drive. I was driving watching all the top European teams. And all I kept thinking, you know, and then Benetton would have events and Nakbar would be coming by at 16 years old. And, you know, I can go on and on. But you yeah. just see where it was transitioning to. All right, Tony, I want to segue into the real meaty stuff now. And – the story in the NBA in the last two years, there's been some great stories, but one great story is this guy named Luka Doncic, who you know well. Um, he's fast becoming one of the great players in the NBA. Um, take us through the process of finding this kid. I know you saw him earlier than me. I think I saw him when he was 16. Mm-hmm. But, but you go back even further. But just, just talk about how Luka Doncic becomes who he is. Yeah, Luca Magic is a good way to describe this kid. Is um, I've you know I've been doing this for thirty years, and I've never encountered a kid at his age that had me when I walked in the gym and I walked out as this kid is special. And I've been around a lot of I've seen a lot of great players like Marcelonis and Dino Bodoroga and Tony Kukoc and great great Vladi Divac. I mean, great players, but yeah. 
I've never seen a kid with a swag and a no fear factor and a confidence level he had for a kid coming from a small country of Slovenia with 2 million people. And for him to come at an early age of 13 years old to leave his country and to move to Spain and learn the language and to learn to be a pro at say, let's say 14, he was already becoming a pro and on the, he had to be a practice certain time. He learned the discipline part. Um, you know, that stuff is not taught or ever seen in our great basketball country of USA. Um, again, I, and I, and I still just kept saying, how do we get this kid? How do we stay on top of this kid? Because this kid is special and watching his, watching him play at 14 years old against 17, 18 year old kids and literally Fran, he dominated. I mean, yeah. maybe not with his strength and, and, and that, but his, skill level and his ability to you know usually when you're 14 years old you throw the ball to the 18 year old kid who's a better player because you defer he was not deferring friend and yeah I've never seen it and and you know you start talking about the great players you know you put them in the category as the great ones of the NBA the Kobe's the LeBron's and Michael Jordan's and these guys and that's I'm thinking myself how can we get this kid and how can we hide him because he's going to blow up but I, but I, I believe in him. And due to the fact that we've had success with international players, we, yep. Bonnie and I are big believers. And we, you know, and our gut told us that this kid was special. Um, and so I how, followed him from that time on. How did you, how did you now tell, 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 tell the listeners, um, it's not just you and Donnie, you've got people around the world helping you. But in this case, Roberto, your, your international scout, our Italian friend, Talk about how you track a guy like this when you can't be over there every game. Well, yeah, once we, we identify a player like a special talent like this kid, it's pretty much A1 from Roberto Carmonete, who was a former coach with, in Milan in, in the Thailand League and he's also worked a lot of stuff with Seeds Academy in, in Senegal. He's got a good feel and he's got great passion. And you've been around him, Fran. He just loves yeah. the game, lives the game. So he's a guy that we basically said, look, follow him around. You know, and the things you have to identify is what teams are watching them as much as you are. So we have to calculate that when the draft comes. Um, information with his coaches, information with his people that are taking care of him as it becomes important. Um, and making sure when that time comes that you're prepared to do whatever you can to get a, a star game changer. Those guys are very hard to find in our league. Um, so Roberto and – even Alvitas, who works with us, who is, is with the Mavericks, who's from Lithuania, is another guy that saw him in junior tournaments. And, and he also continued to follow him and kept his antennas up on all his people that maybe were playing for Madrid and in and, and, and their program to keep an eye on what type of kid he is, what type of person he is, and all that stuff, intel, the background information that comes. And Tony, we have a, go yeah, ahead. No, no, I was going to ask you this. He dominated the Euro League. He dominated. He dominated yeah. the junior league, Fran, which was the start. At 14 years old, he was playing yeah. with 17, 18-year-old kids. And then at 17, 16, they move him up to the Real Madrid team. And then at 17, he's going against OKC in a preseason game and literally guards and makes plays during that game that it just blew me away against an NBA team and had no fear. And I think the biggest thing is just the, the, the no fear factor. He's not the fastest guy on the floor, but his foot skills – his heart, no analytical guy can reach in and figure out what type of guy this guy's going to be. And as you know, the numbers in Europe are skewed because of the minutes they play, how they play. And, you know, Luca was sometimes would score eight points, seven assists. Maybe you walk away and say, what, what's so great about him? But right. I saw the greatness, but then he comes to the NBA and get 30 points becomes like normal. Well, how about this now? Let's, let's do this. Let's describe – the styles of play between Europe and college, okay? And also how much different the level of play is for an 18-year-old in the Euro League versus – and doing what he did versus an 18-year-old, let's say a really good player in the SEC or the Big Ten. Take us through the difference of, of – the vast difference between the two levels. One is you're – at his age, you're playing against older, mature players, first of all. Secondly – you become, say, an example is Barcelona. Juan Carlos Navarro, one of the greatest European players, and would not have been a good NBA player. He played in Memphis a little bit, but he's a great European player. He makes big shots, but a lot of the times players defer to him because 
he gets the ball when he should. Um, the style of play, an example is there's 35 less possessions in a European game compared to an NBA game. Think about it, 35 yeah. less possessions. Right. So what does that mean? Every possession is very important. So these kids understand every shot is like a game-winning shot. Every pass is a game-winning pass. Every hockey assist. Everything they do has got to be to perfection. So as a player, the mistake level compared to a college game or a G League game or even an NBA game, you can't make mistakes. You have to be on your game. And that's why the skill level is so ahead of our skill level. Now, we're quicker. We're more athletic, our, our American players. Um, we have better players. I get it. But the skill level there, as you've seen being coaching over there, is yeah. off the chart. And so the difference is huge in the game. And we in the European game does not over dribble. You right. take five or more dribbles, you're coming out of the game. That ball does not talk to the floor. It moves. Players move. They backdoor cut you. They screen you. We air screen in college. They actually screen you in Europe. You get right. hit. Right. How about the how about the level of play? Just so the listeners know, like where he played and dominated for an eighteen year old versus if he were playing in the Big Ten. The Real Madrid, the team he played on, which he started on and won the EuroLeague MVP and everything he won over there, they would beat any team in the Big Ten by 30 to 50 points or more. <laughs> it's hard for Peter. You, it's I, hard I, for people to understand. And here's the <laughs> other thing. People don't realize, you know, now I know we've, we've had a lot – we've lost a lot of preseason games, our NBA teams going over there. Yeah. Um, I mean, Barcelona, Bicha, Madrid, those teams, those top European teams, like FS Pilsen is one of the best teams in Europe right now in Turkey. Yeah. They can come in the NBA and they can beat our bottom teams in a night. Now, maybe right. in a bet to seven, we're going to, yeah. you know, the NBA team will always win. But yeah. on a given night, those teams can come over and beat you. Well, I, I, FS Pilsen and, and, uh, and Atlanta Hawks, I hate to say it, but that could go 4 3 or maybe the Hawks that, win four games, yeah, exactly. four games to two. Four games to two. Yeah. Right. And, and they got talented players. And, and, and the other thing, too, is we would have a hard time guarding their system. We're not used to it. Right. You know, those backdoor cuts were just, I mean, our guys would be like, you got to be kidding me. And the fact is, they actually screen you over there. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we air screen over here. How, how much better, uh, uh, barring injury, how much better is he going to be? Like, he, is, he, is he generational like, like, Le, like LeBron and Kobe? I, I believe it. I do because the stuff he does on the floor, one can't coach, one can't teach. Yeah. And and the more he plays in our league and he understands our system and our game, he keeps improving. And it's, and the thing about him is the way he gets the rim and people bounce off him. He doesn't the, the 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 banging doesn't bother him, and people don't realize he gets banged in Europe all the time. So he's used to getting banged and yeah. getting hit. But it becomes easier because of the spacing in our league. He's only really going ISO one-on-one when he's getting down there against smaller guards. And taller guards have a hard time guarding him because he's got such great footwork to create space from his defender to him. And, again, you know, his just feel and his passing skills. I mean, again, we can't teach that. The only thing that could happen is that I think kids today will start watching him. And I think he's – and the interesting thing about Luka Doncic is He's penetrating inner city America. I'll give you an example. My high school team is in Oakland. Um, I asked my kids, you know, what, what are the players on the team want? And um, I would, they're probably 80% African-American and they all said they want a Luka Doncic t-shirts. And yeah. <laughs> that's, and, and now you go and my twin boys uh, actually saw kids in the neighborhood wearing Luka Doncic. And so he's, right. he's penetrating America, his, his skill level. Yeah. How do you, how do you think, uh, how do you think I'm segueing back to this? Cause it's, it's kind of ironic. He didn't really go under the radar. Everybody watched him. Every NBA team watched him for the last four years yet. He sort of did because if he didn't go under the radar, he would have gone first or second in the draft. Yeah. And I think it all comes down to, again, when you, when you, when you, so you go to a, a college game, see a great player in college, say Kelly Oubre back in the day, he scores 20, right. 10, that's where you used to see him put up every night. But you may go watch Luca play. He may not start. He may come off the bench, maybe only play 15 minutes that game because right. they change starting lineups every game. That's just their system. Right. So these kids – and so they learn how to come off the bench. They know how to play under pressure. So, so you know, an NBA, when they scout in Europe, you may see a prospect not play at all. 
Or he right. may have a bad game and have six points and four assists, and what do you do? You write him off. Or the team is hiding him. Our team's hiding him, correct. And that's the other thing that happens quite a bit. You know, they know that there's, you know, 20 NBA guys in the, in the stands, and the, and, <laughs> and the head coach might say, you know what? He's not going to play tonight. And, and that's the way it goes. That's why you got to have guys that work for your organization that can spend – that are over there all the time and keep up to date, keep up to date, and then try to pick dates and games. There's a lot of strategy on picking – Gains where you're going to and trying to stay under the radar. A lot, a lot of times I tell Roberto, don't tell the uh, director of uh, uh, the tickets uh, that we're coming. We don't need tickets. We'll buy tickets. Right. We buy and we go sit up high and try to hide if we can because I think right. that's real important. You don't want other teams to know your secrets if you have one. Correct. That's why I usually sit away. And same thing when I go to college games these days. The only time it can't is at Kansas because you're stuck there in the corner yeah. there. But <laughs> usually when I go to games, I'll sit away from everybody else. I, I just like to be – you know, on my own and, and evaluate and watch the game. How, how did you first learn how to translate what you see overseas? And, because and I took I took style of play, um, and it's kind of like, you know, when people evaluate talent, sometimes they say, well, this guy can't do this, they can't do that. So my, my comment back to my guys is always, are we in their practice every day? We need to get information is – Maybe he doesn't shoot threes because the coach wants him on the block all the time. Um, maybe he wants to pick and pop him only on a short corner or roll him to the basket. You know, you know, but but if you watch, sometimes you go to these, you get to the games early, you see guys shoot three, Fran, as you know, and they're like, God, that guy can shoot three. But he doesn't yeah. do it in the game because the coach won't let him. So those are the factors that come in. I think people get written off too quickly when you're evaluating talent is you always say what they can't do. My question is, why can't they do it? There must be a reason because I think I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that he can do it because right. if the kid's that talented, why are we watching him? So I think what happens is kids get written off quite a bit. On, on the flip side of that, when you find a guy you really like, why, why do international kids seem to make such an easy adjustment or an easier adjustment to the I, NBA than a college kid? Oh, I can tell you that right away. It's because our college kids, when they come in, in, in to our league, the first thing you got to try to do is slow them down. They go way too fast. The pick and roll game. They always want to go quick. They just everything's quick. European guys come over. They're already slowed down. They right. read the defense. They're already reading stuff. And there's so many different, like from Russia, their philosophy of coaching is different than how they coach in Greece. Greece is different how they coach in Italy. There's so many different philosophies of coaching and how they play that these kids come in their basketball IQs off the chart because they see it. The only, you know, and if they have any type of foot skill or, or foot speed, their transition is easy. Like I used to watch Ruby all the time. You know, he would, he would get four or five assists a game. Now people don't realize four to five assists a game in Europe is like eight or nine in the big 10. Right. Because to get assists in Europe, you literally got to catch it and score and you're in, in a USA I throw the ball to Fran. Fran take 19 dribbles to score. I get an assist. So right. that's, you know, so there's all kinds of factors when you're evaluating. So the analytical numbers for European players is very difficult to translate. Right. Right. All right. Now that, that, that brings me to this. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to switch gears here because I want to get this in. Then we'll come back. Um, because of your renowned internationally, you were the first, uh, international scout for coach K's resurgent, you know, whatever they call it, redeem team, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you were the first international scout that they had because you do players around the world. Um, you are, you, you actually got under Kobe Bryant's skin. And I want you to tell that story because Kobe said after, after you took, after you get under his skin, he said, I like you. Exactly. <laughs> he, you know, and, and again, you know, when you walk in a room like that, Coach K was the greatest. He told me, you're my assistant coach. You're my, you're my head scout. You do this, this. I want you to be on the floor with these guys. I want you to interact with them. I want you to rebound. I want you, I want you to be in every meeting with us. I want you to raise your hand if you don't think we're doing something defensively. And yep. um, so that was the, the, the biggest thing is, is, is before we get into Kobe, just real quick is one of the, things that I thought we did before international basketball, we used to chase outside the three-point line. The European philosophy was to make the Americans come out six feet above the three-point line and right. chase us. Yeah. And then what we did is we took the three-point line and went one step above it and we played there. So we didn't go chase anymore and that really helped us. And, you know, also making sure that we understand about the three letters USA on the front of our jersey is more important than the, the name on the back of our jersey. So the right. Kobe story was this. 
my job was to educate the team. I spoke to the team about Juan Carlos Navarro. I talked about Ricky Rubio, who these players were around the world. And during the 2007 America's tournament was held in Vegas at Thomas and Mack. We were getting prepared to play um, Brazil, who at the time had Lissandra uh, Barbosa, who came on the scene and was a really good NBA player. Right. My job was to to get video and educate each player, LeBron or Carmelo, about who they're playing against and, and get them to respect their opponent. And I, I kept thinking, how am I going to get Kobe to respect anybody? Because right now he thinks he's, he is the best player in the world. So I kept just – and I so I just came up with an idea. I said, we're playing Barbosa tomorrow. He's got some film, you know, of him guarding Barbosa. So I go to the film guy. I said, do me a favor. I said, give me every time – Kobe guarded Leandro in the NBA. In the NBA, yep. And how many times, every time he scored on him, I want you to, to give me, I want you to video that and, I, and make a video for me and I'm going to give to Kobe. The crazy thing is the video guy got back to me. He says, Tony, good news, bad news. He says, good news is I found 13 clips. Bad news, that's all I could find. I said, 13 is <laughs> better than none. I slipped, I slipped it. So at night, I would have my video guy put the video underneath the players' doors at the win. And next morning we were meeting at 11. I was down there at 1030. Kobe always came in early. He got there by 1015. I was already there. I think I was there by 10. He comes up to me, puts his finger on my back, and he goes, I like you. I got you. <laughs> and he had this look in his eyes that was foaming. So this was, so we go into the, 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 the arena that night, and he's, I see him foaming. We, we go into the board. Coach K has on the board that uh, Kobe wasn't guarding Leandro. And I told Coach K, I said, hey, uh, Coach, I think you may want to uh, change that up. He says, "No, I think we're good with that." I said, "I think you may want to change that up." He says, "Well, I'm going to let I'm going to let Kobe uh, tell me that during the, when we start talking pregame." So we get in the locker room before the game, and I, he's he's foaming, and he literally <laughs> looks on the board. And before Coach K even starts talking, he says, "Coach, uh, uh, I'm I'm guarding Barbosa," and Coach says, "You want him?" He says, "No, I got him." And so we changed that. <laughs> He's on the floor. Coach K looked at me, and I saw. So I told Coach what I did, and he loved it. He was like, "This is great." Yeah. And so what happened, friend? We start the game. I, I we score. That we pick him up full court. Kobe goes end to end, and before he even gets to half court, he's the ball's out in front of him. Kobe knocks the ball loose, dies on the floor, tips it up to to LeBron for a dunk. This is the first forty seconds of the game. And the place is going nuts. And, <laughs> and, and from that point on, every time we got for a big game, a gold medal game, Coach K would put that video 10-second clip on and, and explain to our great players of, of the USA that for us to win a championship, we have to play this way the entire tournament to get the gold medal. So that became a signature play from wow. 2007 to 2012 going into London. That's a great story, man. That is that is unbelievable. I I wanted you to tell it because uh, we're gonna miss this guy terribly, you know. Yeah, we're, it's sad. It's very sad. But we've got great memories of him. That's a great story. Hey, uh, you attended Yao Ming's 18th birthday party. It's actually 16, <laughs> but 16. I don't know if I'm allowed okay. to say that. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, tempt. Let's 18. make it 18. Let's make it 18. So it's. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't know how old he was. I thought he was 18. I okay. didn't know his age. Well, right. how did, okay. Well, you, you got to know China pretty well because you and Donnie found Wang Zhuzhu, who was the first Chinese player uh, to play in the NBA. And then later you were an assistant coach on the Chinese national team. So describe, describe your time in China. Oh, it was, it was, uh, I loved it. It was outstanding. You know, getting Wang Zhuzhu, the first player who was at the time, you know, was in the red army. So it was like impossible for us to ever get him to the NBA and, and we did a lot of work with that and, and was able to happen, which was great for the city of Dallas. He ended up having a nice career in the NBA. And when Donnie and I went back over there, we would do these, uh, you know, clinics around the country. And then we were doing a three-on-three tournament. And at the three-on-three tournament, I took a little walk and see the seven-foot-four guy. Uh, this is before he came over to, you know, play in that event with Raveline and, at, and at, right. in those events in the States. And yep. so – he ended up coming over to our court and we did some drill stuff and he was there and he seven it literally was seven three or seven four at the time and 
we kept thinking, Donnie and I kept looking at each other, how are we going to find a way to get this guy into our team <laughs> in the NBA? <laughs> you know, the Red Army, the Red Army hurt us. We thought we could do the Red Army again and, and trick the NBA team that it's going to be hard to get him out. But due to the fact that we got Wong out, that, that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was great. And then I ended up, you know, going over there and, and uh, working with one of the pro teams over there. I was with Dallas. And then they ended up offering me to be the first ever American uh, assistant coach with the Chinese Olympic team with Wang Fei. And at the time, we had Wang Juju, Yao Ming, and Mink Batir. We had three seven-footers that were really good. And it was a talented, probably one of their best teams ever back yeah. then. How did uh, – tell me this, Tony. I've always wondered this. You, there's not many people that can penetrate the Chinese culture like you did. But wh why, why, don't they, why don't they develop guards in China? What, what's you know, the system like that they don't develop like great guards the way they do some of these big guys? That's a, that's a great question, Fran, and it's a mystery. When you got 1.2 billion people and probably 900 million are under 6'2", is that you can't get a great point guards. They got more bigs and they got better wing players, but they're point guards. I think one of the issues is that the pro teams over there, it's such to emphasize on winning that they all get American point guards. Right. And because of that, the, the Chinese point guards aren't developing. And a suggestion I would give if Yao Ming ever asked me, which I may just offer, is they need to uh, get a development team and put their top players for the future and just let them play in the pro league. And even if they get beat, they can maybe get a big American to play with them to help them out a little. But right. to, you got to develop their point guards. And that's been a big issue. And it, it's surprising because I remember back in – 97 98 being there i kept thinking that you know this country's developing basketball at a rapid pace there's over 300 million people that play the sport it's gonna it's gonna continue to improve and at the time we had three nba players and wong and yao ming and mick Batir and a couple right. other guys that thought probably could have made the nba and so i kept thinking and but it has not had the growth as i thought and and and, and again as you stated it's, it's due to lack of point guard play okay so let me stay on china for a second you and donnie have been over there many times What's the strangest thing you've eaten? Uh, for me, it's the king snake. Donnie decided to, to get me, and then he ended up <laughs> handing me the, the snake blood. So, <laughs> due to the fact that Donnie was my boss, I had to. Uh, we sat at a table. They came. I'm sure I've ate other things, and I just don't know what it is because no one will tell you. <laughs> That's a concern. But the king snake was real because they brought out all these snakes, and they, this snake was huge and of course donnie had to pick the snake and guess what he picks the biggest one because he said everything's everything in dallas is big so we're going with the big king snake well you also didn't want to be rude to your to your host right no and and it's one of those things when you're in china and you're there and they offer you a drink and if you do drink you take it and when they offer you the, the snake blood which by the way they were offered to donnie first and yeah he slid it down to me as a true soldier i took it with a smile and added respect to the dallas mavericks organization and representing <laughs> the nba on our relations and, and usa basketball i took the snake uh blood uh willingly and that was a interesting uh, story. <laughs> uh there's not many people in basketball or or in america in america period that has been to has been to north korea you almost got a player out of there uh, what was his name? Michael Rhee? Michael Rye. I don't know Michael his real Rye. Korean name, but he changed his name to Michael Rhee for the, his, uh, his, for his love of Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. And that's why he changed his name. How tall was he? He was seven foot eight, seven, nine. Yeah. Could he and, play? Could he, I mean, honestly, could he play? Yeah. So the, so I went over there and they, they, it, here's a crazy story. So when I arrived in the country, the, 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 it's like a one building, uh, and like one runway, there's only two flights out of China per week to get there. Right. So when I went there, I was, they had all the military people there and, and they pick you up and they off, they told me to bring a lot of videotapes of like Chicago bulls. And about the time it was VHS. Right. So I brought it that seven. As soon as I arrived, they took all my, all my notes all my VH stuff, all my clinic notes and everything, because I was doing a clinic. Now, they said I was American, but I found out through a few people in the, at the few of the embassies there, the Swedish embassy said that they heard that there was an Italian coming over, which is true. Right. But uh, they didn't realize that I was from America, and they were shocked that, I, that they let me in the country. But I was there to, to see Michael Rye, and we were looking to try to get him on the Mavericks. And <laughs> came the first day, I spent my whole clinic working with him, and getting to know him and he actually could run um 
you know, he didn't have to jump because he just put the ball over the rim. And at the time, our game was big man. Right. And uh, we were in, we were in pursuit. But somehow the second day, uh, he decided not to show up, I think, by the government officials. And so I didn't get to see Michael Rye again. But I did get to coach him for one day in North Korea. Now, was there – now, Kim Kim Jong-il, is, is this the son, the one that's the, the, the dictator now? Is he – no, it was his dad, and I actually okay. met his dad. And I did all this before Rodman. This is back yeah. in 97, and uh, I did meet him. Uh, he came to – so it, it, the, I was doing my clinic. I had 24 players there, and they all wore those old Converse uh, sneakers. Yep. Uh, it was an old uh, building, but it was a 17,000-seat arena, uh, and they had 15,000 people at my clinic every day. Wow. Wow. Now they didn't say a word. They didn't talk. They didn't say a word there, there. And then when at the, you know, when they brought in uh, their great leader, they call him, uh, came up to me. uh, I met him and that was the last time I saw him. And then I found out later through people is that they would talk about his love of the bulls and the NBA basketball is that the videotapes, he was watching the tapes that I brought over back then at that time. Well, and then like you said, Rodman recently has gone over with the Sun, and the Sun's a big basketball fan too. So it could have been those it could have been those Bulls tapes you brought over for the father that uh, that spurred even more love of the Chicago Bulls. Correct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's crazy, man. How um, give other give me a give me an NBA player that an international guy that you whiffed on that you look uh, back and you go, man, I, what did I miss? I would say. Probably, I would say Darko. Um, in the fact okay. is that that draft. Yeah. And I would I would say a whip because you know people still fail to realize that you know Darko played eight to ten years in the league and it wasn't and he, he didn't sit on the bench. I mean he. Well, I wasn't e- I wasn't even thinking of Darko, but you were part of that. Joe, I mean Joe Dumars ultimately pulled. I mean I hate to say it, but yeah. Joe but you know trigger, it, but. you know at the time we won a championship and I think Ben Wallace just tweeted out that you know we probably, you know, if we had anybody else that was in that draft class, we probably wouldn't have won a championship because they would wanted to play and we had such a great team with chemistry. Exactly, so yeah. Well, we, we won a championship in 2004, but I wouldn't say whiff on him. I, you know, he's a good NBA player, but if that draft yeah. was so loaded that it was, it was one of those best drafts ever, you know. Why, why um, do you th- what do you think was missing from his game? Like, when you look back on it, I'm just curious, because he had all the tools. He was a monster. Yeah, I think I think just the passion part, the skill levels off the charts. I'll give you an example. We worked him out at Jay John in New York, yeah. and the only two teams that were allowed to come with his workout was us. And we were playing the, the New Jersey Nets at the time in the playoffs, and we didn't think we were going to move up to number two. And um, so at the time, we needed a big. I mean, we were small. We had Ben Wallace playing the five and Rasheed Wallace at the four. We needed a big. His right. workout that day, Fran, was – I worked him out, actually. I, I yeah. see it was me and Scott Perry worked him out, and – Within 30 minutes, um, I think um, uh, Joe Dumars just looked at me and just said, that's it, I'm good, I'm done. So, you know, the skill level is ridiculous, everything about it. I just think his passion, uh, I think when he didn't play his first year was the biggest thing. I think if he went to Denver where he was supposed to go, right. I think he would have had a probably even better career because they would have played him as a rookie. And at the time, we had Larry Brown and we had a championship team and it was tough for a rookie to get on the floor and I think it frustrated him so. That aspect, I learned a lot from that as an evaluator. Is, you know, one thing, if you are going to bring an international player over and if you are going to draft them, yeah. and even if for a college team, if you are going to bring a kid in, you better play him. Right, right. And, and, and even it's going to hurt you in recruiting. It's going to hurt you down the road with an agent or whatever it is. So you got to be kind of right on that one. I, I, also, I also think that now, if it were 17 years later, Joe would have made multiple trips to Serbia, right? I mean, you don't. Right, no uh, question. I mean, it's 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 much more sophisticated now. NBA scouting is much more sophisticated than Correct. it was. It, you know, the interesting thing is, like, Kiki Vandaway loved him. They Denver called us all during that draft, and they wanted yeah. to move up to two and take him. And you know, we kept getting a lot of calls to move up because people wanted him. Uh, yeah. So what? Just us. There was a lot of teams that wanted, him, but it was one of those drafts that was. You know, look, Dwayne Wade, and they did a great job getting him. He ended up being better than advertised. I thought Boston ended up being great. Yep. Carmelo was a guy that probably, you know, we could have taken and got. But we had Tayshawn Prince, and we just really valued Tayshawn. And, again, we, yeah. you know, we went to six Eastern Finals with that group. Right, exactly, yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, is there a guy – is there a country 
that you're looking at saying, boy, th th this country's got a chance to produce, like what we already know now, the former Yugoslavia, we know what France produces in Spain and now Australia. Um, what's a, what's a country that you think could just burst out with NBA talent someday? Well, we already know the known fact is Australia is doing an incredible job. I mean, it's, it's, it's off the chart. They're, they're, right. they're in the mix with, with, uh, former Yugoslavia, you know, with Slovenia and Croatia and, and Serbia, those areas. But, you know, an interesting country that's coming up with a lot of talent is Czech Republic. Yeah, yeah. And I think Thomas Santorowski, who we had a Euro camp, has, has initiated that. But they've got a lot of talent coming up. The one yeah. that just shocks me, I thought would have more talent, would be Russia. Right. I thought at one time they were on the rise and they've kind of drifted. And I think one of the reasons is also their development of their young players. They, they're so – Pro league is so heavy with getting top players from America that a lot of these kids aren't developing um, at the pace they should. Right. We saw, we saw a great group in the early, early 2000s that Chet, remember we saw the Cheska group every, every yeah. year at Euro camp and they, they all turned out to be nice players in the Russian league, but none of them really ever blossomed the way we thought they might. Yeah. They didn't translate. And I put a lot of, lot of into that um i do that with colleges too you look you know the kansas players like villanova players i've yeah. had a lot of success with with their development their coaches the way right. they play i just feel comfortable if you got a one player and another player those villanova guys without talking about prospects of course but um you know that's the same thing when europe guys that can translate and adjust to our our game is huge and the russians just haven't done it they're, they're talented but they just have not but i think well, the czech republic and of course, Australia is going to continue to just improve and get better with their talent level. Why, why, is, why does Lithuania produce so many players per capita? Uh, they're similar to Slovenia. They're, 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 the love of basketball is their number one sport. Uh, yeah. the, the, the basketball schools they have, you know, Sharonis and, and, and Sabonis, their schools. Um, every team now pretty much has a school similar to what those two guys started. And their development is unbelievable. And they're able to play – their young players at smaller programs right. and let them develop. And then they move them to the big teams when they're ready. So they're really good about that. Loaning their guys out and making them develop and getting them developed. And their national team is such pride. Yeah. Those guys all want to be on it. And it's huge to wear the green uniform that, you know, that's, that's huge in their country. I mean, they live basketball there. It, it, I've always told people that I think Lithuania has maybe 3 million people. Slovenia yeah. has two. And yep. they've, it's always reminded me of Indiana high school basketball. Like, you know, the state of Indiana loves its basketball. That That's always reminded me of Lithuania. Does that make sense? And, and they can all shoot like Indiana. <laughs> yeah. Indiana yeah. Shooters and Lithuania can shoot. Those guys, like you talk about Kurt Ninas to start out. Yeah. Kurt Ninas, the best shooters I've ever seen in my, in the, in my life. I mean, he, you know, he, he's the only guy to never play in the NBA who took place, uh, took part in the NBA three-point contest at the All-Star break. Well, guess what? If he was 25 <laughs> right now, I'd probably yeah. go over and get him and bring him to Dallas. His shooting is, it, this day and age, his shooting, would, he would play in the NBA. That's crazy, man. It's amazing how the, how the game has uh, come back around to shooting. Where do you see Africa going, the, the continent, especially um, with the NBA involvement? I think it's going to come. I think it's going to rise rapidly because they're going to learn how to play. If, and the key is to get good quality coaches over there because the the two things that, that the, the Africa – the players is just the lack of playing, lack of coaching, and of course the infrastructure over there is not good. But right. the physical, the physical bodies, the the athleticism is off the chart over there. So I just think once they learn to even uh, learn to play the game better, it's going to become quickly and rise. That you'll see more players in the NBA. Well, and it also, you know, you said infrastructure. You can go put some places and not find a, a indoor gym for two hundred miles. Correct. Hundred. Right. Yep. You're right. Yeah, and, I, and I've been in Nigeria. I did many clinics outside in Nigeria in the streets. <laughs> That's like being in uh, New York or Oakland, right? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> wow. Outside. That's great, man. And then, hey, hey listen. Finally, uh, most satisfying thing you've done in your MBA career. Like, what what sticks out to you? You're in the midst of a long, great career. You with you're with an incredible organization with the Mavericks. What's the most What's the, what's the funnest thing you've taken part in in your NBA career? Man, that's there's I, I would I I just think the opportunity to be in the NBA, I think the opportunity to be with the USA Olympic team, just to be around great 
players and great people who have passion like we, you and I do. Yeah. Um, I would say winning the 2004 NBA championship along with the 2008-2012 gold medal and the 2010 world championship. I've been very – I think more importantly is just being around great people in this business, guys like you, guys like Coach K, guys like Donnie, Mark Cuban, you know, Joe Dumars. I mean, I can go on and on. I think that is more – for me more than anything friend is just being around great people who love the game and have passion like we do and want to help people get better and when you get an opportunity to draft a kid or get a kid in free agency or see a kid improve it's like being a college or a high school or even a youth basketball coach watching an eight-year-old kid who scores his first basket and I think seeing that smile for me and the game that I love is more important than anything and and I love it and I'm very fortunate to have a great family that supports me and I just think the passion of the game is, is, is the most exciting thing in my life. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, man, you're the first uh, – you're my first guest. So, on the world of basketball, I really appreciate it. You brought great insight uh, into the international game. Uh, you're a pioneer, my man. Nobody does it better. You've been in almost 100 countries. You've won championships. And uh, I, I really appreciate your friendship. I'm glad you're on. And uh, we're going we're gonna to do this again down the road. I would love to. And thank you so much. I appreciate you. And I appreciate your passion you put into the game. Thanks, Brent. I told you you'd be entertained by Tony Ronzoni. And he certainly did that. Uh, love that guy. Love his stories. And uh, he's still going strong as one of the NBA's great uh, player personnel guys and international scouts. If you loved our podcast today, subscribe to the podcast. Give us five stars. Tell us how we're doing. We want to keep this thing going. And uh, we want to continue to entertain and educate you about basketball uh, from every corner of, uh, of the world. And that uh, brings us to the end. So stay tuned because I plan to bring you to another place next week in my own world of basketball.